0: Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. If you have your Bible handy, I ask you to find your place In the Gospel of Matthew, the twenty-fifth chapter of Matthew. A few weeks ago we looked at the parable of the talents in this same chapter, and we learned that the talents are representative of opportunities that God places in our pathway, opportunities that He gives us to see if we're going to be dependable, dependent people whose lives count, not just for time, but for eternity. Today we're going to look at the passage which has to do with the last judgment, a rather somber subject. It brings to mind the story I heard decades ago, and you can see it's outdated in many ways. Before the advancement into high definition photography from amateurs like you or me, when you would want to get a really good set of photographs for yourself that could be touched up if need be by a professional photographer, once you sat for the shoot, then a week or so later you would come by and the photographer or some representative of the office there would spread the photos out before you. Usually you were sitting down and you would look at them and then you would choose the pictures that you wanted to be developed. You remember those days? Not many of you do, I know that, but some of us do remember those days. And this woman went in probably 45, 50 years ago to go through that process. And when she looked at the photos, she said to the photographer, I demand justice. Obviously, she didn't think his work did justice to her appearance. And the man looked at her for a moment and he said, lady, you don't need justice, you need mercy. Well, that could be said about me and so many other people when it comes to that. But what we're going to look at today is how our God is a God of justice. He is, make no mistake about it, a God of mercy. And people who don't understand or know God, they oftentimes take God to task and accuse him of being an unfair God. What they're really saying is, he's not a God of justice. God is the ultimate person of justice. It is his idea to begin with. And what we need to understand is, God doesn't have to show his mercy to anybody because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all, in some way or another, shaken our fist at God. In your face, God. And God says in both Old and New Testament, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And I will show compassion upon whom I will show compassion. Our God is a loving God. Make no mistake about that. But he is also a God of holiness. He is the thrice holy God, holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, the ninth chapter, it is appointed that man shall die once, and after that comes the judgment. And Jesus speaks of it here, and let us have ears to hear what the Spirit of God would say to us this morning about the matter of justice. I'm going to read, rather than the entire passage and then come back and go through it in detail, I'm going to take three sections. I'm going to go ahead, if you're taking notes, to divide this into three sections. Verses 31 through 33 have to do with the coronation of Christ as king at the last judgment. The coronation of Christ as king. Beginning with verse 34 and ending at verse 40, these verses have to do with the commendation that Christ gives to his sheep. He's going to give a great word of praise, as it were, to those who are his sheep. And lastly, he's going to talk beginning with verse 46 through verse 41 rather, through verse 46. He's going to talk about the condemnation of the goats, those who are not part of His flock, as it were. So let's begin by looking at the coronation of Christ. Look at verse 31 of Matthew 25. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, and the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep. Let's stop just a moment there. When Christ comes, he will come and be escorted by all the angels, the Bible says. That'll be a sight to see, won't it? And what we understand here is that in verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him. No one will be exempted from coming to this moment of face-to-face encounter with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is being crowned in that moment. It's a moment that has been waited on for all of human history practically, for the revelation of this king in all his regalia with all the people and all those beings in heaven glorifying Him. It's going to be a great moment. And the audience, of course, is comprised of two groups of people, sheep and goats. Jesus is fond of calling the church the flock of God. And Jesus says this about Himself, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. He also says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. No one can take them out of my hand. Jesus Christ gives eternal life to all those who believe in him. John 3.16, most of you could quote it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. whoever believes in Him, and that doesn't mean simply head knowledge. It involves understanding who He is and what He's done for you. But you can understand that He is the God-man, fully God, fully man. He is the Lamb of God who came into the world to save sinners and that required that He offer Himself as a sacrifice and willingly take the punishment for my sin, your sin, and the sins of all people upon himself. But what we do know is that Jesus Christ requires that we make a commitment to him. We must believe in him, not just with our heads, but also with our inner being. We're to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. That means we take his yoke upon us, and we let Him become the ruler of our lives. We relinquish authority to do what we want to do. And we come, we say, Lord, I know that I have broken your law. I know I'm a sinner. But Lord, I also know that you have made a way for me, and that way is yourself. Remembering that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's one way to God. And it's the person of Jesus Christ. And all that contains who He is, what He's done for us, and what He will continue to do for us throughout eternity. Or I forget, let me just say this. Jesus Christ... Currently, right this instant, and in the next nanosecond, and all the way out throughout the history of mankind, He literally lives to make intercession for us. That means that Christ pleads to the Father His work on our behalf, His shedding His blood for our sin, and then His making it possible for us to enter into the kingdom of God. But as many as receive Him, to them He gives the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. And if you know much about the way that Jesus portrays Himself in the book of John especially, whenever there's the word belief, and it occurs multiple times in John's gospel. If you're familiar with John, you know it's the gospel of belief. But that word always is followed by the same preposition, I don't want to get too technical, but you need to understand this. The English reader, when it says believe in, that is not really what the word is. It's the word believe into, which suggests that we have to make a movement toward and make a decided commitment to Christ to welcome Him into our lives. That's what it means to receive Christ in your life. Humbly, humbly submitting yourself to Him and receiving Him as your Lord and Savior. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's awesome to think about, isn't it? And every nation, every tribe, every people will have representatives in the sheepfold when Christ comes again. This is why Jesus says, for instance, in His treatment of the last days, You've read it before. He says, when the gospel is presented finally to every nation, it's the word ethnos, is the way it sounds, our word ethnic, ethnicity comes from that word in the New Testament language. When every nation has heard the gospel, it's been preached to every nation so that everyone has an opportunity to give their lives to Christ and not face him in judgment, but to face him when he commends them for being followers of his. There'll be somebody in heaven from every group of people in the world. Isn't that encouraging? Every people group. So this is why we do missions. Why do we send people to far reaches of the world? Why are believing followers of Christ today trying to pioneer in places where people don't even have a language in some cases, and they don't even have a clue as to who Jesus Christ is, but they go there and they put themselves in harm's way many times so the gospel could get to those people. This is wonderful to think about, isn't it? And verse 33 says, He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. I'm going to resist the temptation to go into too much Information here, but when you look at the concept of being on the right side of God or in the right hand of God, that conveys at least two very important things that are true of you. One is that you are in a place of honor. Not only are you his sheep, but also you are his younger brother or sister. Did you know that the Bible speaks of Jesus as being our elder brother if we know him? We are part of the family of God. And if I'm not mistaken, our God, Father, is king. And Jesus is also a king. And if we're related to them through the blood of Christ and his work on our behalf, what does that say about us? Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. We are a royal priesthood. Wow. A kingdom of priests is the way the book of Revelation describes it, quoting from the Old Testament Exodus. Amazing. This is who we are. And we're in a place of honor, but also the idea of being in the right hand of God or having the right hand of God upon you or me or being on the right side of God is the idea of power also. It's the power of the Holy Spirit of God. This is who we are. It's amazing if we are sheep. So these first three verses speak of this magnificent appearance of Christ in judgment and a time when all injustice is exposed and dealt properly with and those who have yielded themselves to Christ are entered in to eternal life with God. The second section has to do with the commendation of those who are on the right side, the sheep. Look at verse 34 of Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father. The word blessed is the same word that Jesus chooses in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, where he talks about blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the ones who mourn. Blessed, 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 blessed. There are eight Beatitudes. And the word really means congratulations to. You are incredibly blessed. There's no way you could be more blessed is the idea. And this is what he says. It will say to you and me that day if we know him, if he is our Lord, he is our master, he is our chief shepherd and we are sheep, he's going to make that statement to us. A place of great blessing because it's a place of honor and power for living what we call the Christian life. What's the reason for this commendation? Let's look back at our text. He comes on to say, Come you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God takes the initiative in our salvation. The Bible says, there is no one who seeks God. This is in the book of Romans chapter three. No one seeks God. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is no one who understands God. And this fits quite well with what we read in the book of Ephesians chapter two, verses one and two. I'm paraphrasing, but what the Bible says, as for you, Paul's writing to a group of believers In the church in Ephesus, he says, As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sin until God did his marvelous work of regenerating you, calling you from death to life, raising you, as it were, from dead, spiritual, to alive, spiritual. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and 10, we read these words. For by grace, that means as a gift, for by grace you have been saved by God. Notice it's a passive verse, verb. You have been saved through faith and that not of yourself. What? You mean I didn't have something to do with my salvation? Well, that's what the Bible says, not just in Ephesians, but if you study carefully the scripture, that's what you conclude. You must conclude it. It's there. For by grace you have been saved. No turning back. Once you're saved, once the Lord saves me, he will not reject me. Jesus says this in John. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Isn't that comforting? All the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Once we're in the fold, we're not going to get kicked out. This is what the Bible says in many places. In the book of John, the book of Romans, the book of Ephesians, the books of the Bible are replete with these kinds of promises. And we as sheep have the privilege and the humble role of receiving something we did not contribute to because we did not seek the Lord. When Jesus is talking about his mission in the Gospel of Luke, the Bible says about him that he came to seek and to save the lost. That's what Christ has done for us. And he has consequently done what was prepared for us from the foundation of the world. Here again, I wish we could go back. And look at a little more detail in Ephesians chapter 1. Take some time. Do yourself a favor. Take time to read that short epistle. And the first chapter talks about how God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. What a gospel we have. How God sent Christ to bring us into relationship with Him. I mentioned I was going to state what verse 10 of chapter 2 of Ephesians say. I'm going to repeat the two verses before. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not on our works, is it? And it goes on to say, for God created us in Christ Jesus, listen carefully, before the creation of the world, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, To do His good work. We don't do good works to get in right relationship with God. We do good works inevitably because of the presence of Christ in our lives. And we follow Christ. And He does His work in us and then through us. This is the gospel. And this is what we see here. Now the practical application of this to the casual observer, and even sometimes to us as serious followers of Christ, we don't give much attention, if any, to what I've just talked about regarding God taking the initiative. We look at these verses and we read them as we hear what Christ says, is going to say at that day, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. Sheep are righteous. They're made righteous by Christ. God, the Bible, 2 Corinthians five twenty says, God made Christ who knew no sin to become sin by dying on the cross so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. We have righteousness in us. It's an imputed righteousness. It's something that was conveyed to us when we had no capacity to mount up a righteousness within us, according to what the scriptures say. The righteous will answer him, saying, Verse 37 Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked? and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer to say, and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. You did it to me. Now I've never seen Jesus in his body, his glorified body. I've never seen him. These people... We're astonished and will be astonished when he says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink, naked you clothed me, sick you visited me, I was in prison, etc., etc., etc." When do we do that? Well, he says, when you've done it unto one of the least of these brothers of mine, you've done it to me. Please turn to the book of Matthew chapter 12, and I hope you're wondering, thinking, well, Who are the least of these brothers? Who are these brothers? A lot of debate goes on here. But one of the important principles of interpreting the Bible correctly is to see how words and ideas are used in the context. That would be what comes before or after some teaching in that particular book of the Bible and sometimes going out beyond the borders of that book of the Bible to see what the whole Bible has to say. But fortunately for us when it comes to this matter, it's very plain to see in the 12th chapter of Matthew beginning with verse 46. While he was still speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But he answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, Jesus and disciples, let's understand something, make, make it perfectly clear. The disciples were not just the apostles. That apostles were disciples before they were apostles. There are only 12 apostles. But the word disciple is used over 250 times in the New Testament to describe a follower of Christ. It's intended when Christ calls you or me out of darkness into his marvelous light so that we can declare his glory in the world, that we become disciples which simply means an apprentice of Christ. We apprentice ourselves and Christ takes us on as apprentices and it's a lifelong period of apprenticeship. And we are taught by him. He is the expert. We are the novices. We come and he teaches us. Look at verse 49 when he says he stretches his hand Toward his disciples, behold my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Disciples are called to obedience. And these disciples are sometimes needy. We all have needs, don't we? From time to time, I doubt if there's a person in the room who knows Jesus and loves Jesus And has followed Jesus for any length of time, who has not been in a place where you didn't know where your next meal was going to come from. You didn't know if you could pay your house note or your rent. You weren't sure whether you could pray, play, pay, I get it right the third time, pay your electric bill or your water bill or your gas bill or your car note. You didn't know. And you had been faithful to the Lord in serving him. And you believe what Christ says in Matthew 6. 33, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. And the other things in that context would be the necessities of life. And you go before the Lord and you say, Lord, you know I've been faithful to you to the level I understand that. And I know you promised that you're gonna help me. Please help me. Anybody been there besides me? You don't wanna go talking to other believers about it. You're talking to the Lord who is the one who gives us what we need. And I mentioned it in the prayer earlier from Matthew 7, where Jesus says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father in heaven know how to give good gifts to you? So you just plea, plead with the Father, and He's come and helped you. Have you had that happen to you? Somebody will be a sheep in that vast throng of sheep at the judgment. And there will be people there who ministered to Christ by helping you out because Christ lives in you. I should spend more time on that, but I won't. But I hope you know that when you receive Jesus, it's not a figure of speech. Christ comes to live in you, in your heart, if you will, or in your spirit. He takes up residence in our lives. And so when we minister to someone who's hurting physically or emotionally, When we're ministering to a brother or sister in Christ, we're really ministering to the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you're encouraged to think about that. And there's a great importance here. If you'll go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. This is from the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And we were in his mind, by the way. You today were in his mind back that evening in the Garden of Gethsemane, the day before he was crucified as he prays this prayer. Listen carefully in verse 20 of John 17. I do not ask in behalf of these alone. He's talking about his apostles. But for those who believe in me through their word, have you believed in Jesus Christ? To be your Lord and Savior. Where did the understanding of what that means to believe in Him come from? It came from the writings of these apostles. And so we today are the beneficiaries of Jesus Christ through the apostles He's thinking of us in this prayer. And then look at verse 21. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. World evangelization is directly linked to our being unified as the body of Christ. In Psalm 133, Simple psalm, short psalm. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like oil coming down over the beard of Aaron, going down his beard over his clothing, down to his feet. And who was Aaron, by the way? The first high priest. And who is our high priest now? Jesus is our high priest. He lives to make intercession for us. And what is the church called in the New Testament? It's called the bride of Christ. It's called a building of Christ, but it's also the body of Christ. Body of Christ, one Jesus on earth, confined to one human body. Now he's spread out all over the world. Wherever the church is, Christ is present, the true church. And so what he desires for us, and it makes perfectly good sense, is unity. What happens when a body begins to do, in some ways, what it was not designed to do? And goes rogue. A part of the bodies are one of the systems, the neurological system, the digestive system. Some of the systems begin to go wrong. It's chaos, isn't it? It's sickness. And what the Lord wants us to understand is that unity in the body is critically important to the proper functioning of the church. And also, this is very important. Also, it's important to people seeing that on the outside. Who in the world will want to join a group of people who didn't like each other, fighting and fussing, just not really a body at all, but... Uh, congregation of people who gather and then they go. They have nothing to do with each other. And what Christ is saying is the way the world will see that I am truly who I say I am and whom God the Father says I am is to see the members of my church caring for each other as Jesus speaks of it in Matthew 25. Go one book toward the back to Acts Chapter 4, verse 32. The scripture says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That sounds like unity, doesn't it? And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. This is a movement of the Spirit of God. Unity and people are reaching out. They're aware of each other. They know each other and they don't sit back and make wisecracks about how poor other people are. Rather, they spontaneously, and it's more than spontaneity, it's the movement of the Spirit of God. They reach out and help their hurting brothers and sisters in Christ. The final apologetic for the Christian faith. We have some great apologists in our day. People who study to be ready to give an answer to those who ask them for the hope that is within them. Great apologist. But the final apologetic by a great apologist, I might say, is in a little book called This, The Mark of the Christian. His name was Francis Schaeffer. He wrote prolifically. I couldn't understand half of what he said when I would try to read the books. He was a philosopher, Christian philosopher. But in this little book, it was so clear. He said, the final answer to a waiting and critical world when they look at the church is how they care for each other because they don't see that in the world. They see people in the world who are all about themselves. Even when they're being benevolent, they're about themselves. They're wanting to get attention, get something from being kind to the people. But in the church, when people really are doing as they ought to do and they're doing it because they're sheep, because Christ indwells them, the outcome is phenomenal in terms of the impact on a watching world that's looking for something that's characteristic of that kind of life. Well, let's now look at the condemnation of the goats. We're almost through with this teaching today. The condemnation of the goats. Verse 41 Then He will also say to those on His left, Depart from Me, accursed ones. That's a strong word. Christ became a curse for us when He died on the cross for us, taking the punishment for our sin from God the Father. Into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave Me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave Me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me. And naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer saying, Lord, same kind of response that the sheep gave. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The righteous will go into eternal life first and foremost because God sent Christ to the world to save sinners and they recognized their sinfulness by the illumination of the Holy Spirit to them. And they gave their lives to Jesus. They became sheep. And then there are people who don't know They don't don't want to know about Christ. They don't want anybody to interfere with the governance, the management of their lives. They're doing quite well, thank you. And they want to take care of themselves. Or they have a misconception of who Christ is and what the gospel is. But these people who comprise the goats are people who will have eternal punishment. In the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul describes it this way, eternal destruction. A place where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. A place where the worm and the fire are never quenched. A place of outer darkness. It's, it's a horrible place to think about. And that's what's reserved for people who don't trust Christ. We who know Jesus are contemplating, we want to know Him because He loves us. We see how much He loves us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't find Himself forced to die. He wanted to die for us and pay the penalty for our sin so that we could have Him in our lives and have the mercy of God in our lives. I started with a quotation from Hebrews the ninth chapter, the 27th verse. But the sentence in the original language doesn't stop there. So I'm going to read the part that I quoted to begin with and add the next verse, Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust that He might bring us to God. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the only sacrifice that could satisfy the payment for our sin. The only one. And He only did it once. He's not crucified over and over again one time. And the Scripture goes on to say, He shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him We are told in the book of 2 Timothy that those who love the appearing of Christ, the second coming, are going to receive a reward. And the reward is a well done, good and faithful servant. Come on in, sheep. I've been looking forward to this moment from eternity past. That's what the Lord wants for us. And it's ours for humbly, Asking for him to save us and give us the gift of eternal life. One last look at the book of Matthew. Go back to Matthew chapter 7. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount also. And you probably have heard this often. Matthew seven twenty one says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This goes along with Jesus' description of who one of the least of these is. These brothers are those who do the will of God. He goes on to say in verse 22 of Matthew 7, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in, in your name cast out demons? In your name perform many miracles? There may not be many people here who have prophesied in the name of the Lord. Maybe not many people have cast out demons. These people had done these things and, or performed many miracles, not just a handful, but many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The Bible talks in several places about in the last times, there will be a lot of false teachers, false prophets, false Christs, false apostles, and they'll do signs and wonders. The devil has some degree of ability to superintend that too, amazingly. I believe God has people who prophesize in His name, who cast out demons and do signs and wonders. I have no problem with that. It was scriptural. I have no problem. But many times we concern about that because we can't do that. Nothing's happened like that through my life. It's not necessarily due to a lack of power or understanding. It's just that that's not God's niche for you or for me. I close with this statement. It's not by big miracles that one's life counts, but by little ministries Caring for people who are hungry. Caring for brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ. Caring for people outside the body of Christ too. Our first place of responsibility is in the church. To minister to the people in the church. But we are not left just for the church. We are to spread the net further and minister to people who are in need. And many times that opens a door for effective witness for Christ for people to come to know Jesus, too. So as we close, I ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes here, and hopefully you have been thinking about your own life. Am I a sheep or am I a goat? Well, if you're asking that question, it's a good question to ask. You may be a sheep. You may have already asked Christ to forgive you of your sin, come live in your life. And you may say, but, you know, I haven't really been... On the lookout for people who are hungry and the body of Christ, people who are needy in some way. And I've just been so busy trying to get along myself. I I don't, I'm having trouble. And maybe it's a time now you just say, Lord, help me to be a better sheep of yours. Just ask the Lord that. Would you please, Lord? I haven't. And then there's some here who know for sure that you're not a sheep. And There's not a time now for you to ask help me to get better, but help me to surrender to you. I give you my life, Lord. I want to ask you to save me from my sin. Thank you, Lord. Oh, Lord, I pray for us all that we would be people who think often of our great opportunity to serve you by serving each other. And I pray for this church in the Church of Christ in El Paso, in the Borderplex, all over the world, Lord. There'd be a great revival of unity in your church for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.